0: Hello friends. So I started the previous Ben-Her episode starting how any film that wins a whopping 11 Academy Awards is worth paying attention to. Well did you know that there are in fact two other films that have also won 11 academies? uh, The Return of the King and Titanic, both of which you agree are pretty epic films. While I have wanted to record something on Titanic for a long time due to its almost mythical love story. I felt particularly inspired today to do so because it is July 2023 and the Titanic story has sort of resurfaced in people's imagination. Recently headlines have been populated with that terrible tragedy of the Titan submarine, the self-made, apparently unsinkable vessel that imploded while exploring the Titanic ruins, killing 5 people. Insensitive memes and tweets aside, I was struck by how many comments referred to the word hubris. A word that denotes the arrogance towards the gods, or against the gods. Hubris, of course, was a major theme in the original Titanic story and certainly contributed to the loss of 1500 lives, but I do feel it's a theme worth examining, especially today. And so this episode will be divided into two parts. The first half will be recognising the tendency towards pride and hubris in our culture, and the danger that places us in. The second part is a lot more pleasant um, and will reflect upon my original inspiration of why Titanic is such a timeless love story. To do this, I will explore three iconic scenes in the movie. The sunset I'm flying Jack scene, (laughs) then Rose's I'll never let go scene towards the end of the movie. And thirdly, a mysterious scene I'll only reveal when we get to it. And if I do my job well, you may well find that hubris and love are not actually disjointed themes at all. The story of James Cameron's Titanic is so popular I don't even know if I need to summarise the story here for you in the same way as I do in other episodes. But ever so briefly, here is a summary. It is 1912 and the RMS Titanic, the much trumpeted unsinkable ship of dreams, is setting sail from England to New York. The first half of the movie is really about the developing love story between two of the passengers, Rose and Jack with Rose coming from a rich, upper class family, while Jack is a poor, third class, vagabond artist. When fate wins Jack a ticket onto the RMS Titanic, he thought he was sailing off to America to begin a new life. However, one night he intercepts Rose as she was just about to jump off the ship's stern and commit suicide, so suffocated and trapped she felt about her superficial life and her impending marriage to Cal, a rather cold and selfish, money-hungering businessman. Anyway, through saving Rose from jumping, a friendship begins which slowly blossoms into romance, which is much to the dismay of Rose's family and Cal. There is a brief tension on both sides as they decide whether such an unlikely pair could ever make it work, but on the fateful night of the ship's sinking, Rose becomes resolved that she would follow her heart instead of her family. She seeks Jack out, culminating in the scene on the ship's bow where Rose feels like she was flying and they kiss for the first time, which soon leads to the I want you to draw me as one of your French girls scene (laughs) and so on. Little did the young lovers know that in the decks above, Hubris had driven business tycoon Bruce Ismay to egg the captain on to send the Titanic full speed so as to try and arrive in New York ahead of time and thus make world headlines. Not heeding many iceberg warnings and still believing the ship was unsinkable, the Titanic ploughs ahead and of course hits the fateful iceberg and is gravely gashed across one side. The second half of the film captures the ship as she slowly goes under, with only enough lifeboats for half the passengers on board. In the crisis of it all, we see both the worst of humanity, such as the locking up of third class passengers so that the first class could get onto the lifeboats first, and the best of humanity such as the one brave lifeboat that returns to search for survivors. Eventually of course Titanic fully sinks and Rose and Jack are left paddling water until Jack finds a floating door and selflessly places Rose on top of it. There is room only for one and there they must wait together for any sign of help. Eventually that one lifeboat does return only to find that Rose was the only one to survive, floating atop the door. Tragically, Jack has himself died of hypothermia and Rose has to let him go, while repeatedly promising I'll never let go, referring to an earlier promise she had made to Jack to keep on living despite the odds that life throws against her. Rose does go on to live many happy and fruitful years, starting a family and so on, just as she had promised Jack, and dies an old woman warm in her bed. Or does she die, no one really knows. In the final scene, we see her spirit return to the Titanic ship, where she is reunited in applause with all who had taught her to love, and of course, to Jack, her first true love. So, there's the movie in a nutshell. I will now commence our reflection with a commentary firstly on hubris, the worst type of pride, man's arrogance in the face of God and what a tale Titanic is to capture the hubris of man, both historically and in the movie. Those of you who have listened to my Moby Dick episode will remember that in mythology, the seas represent both the archetype of chaos and the mystery of God, whose mysterious depth and breadth are always unfathomable. In eras gone by, civilizations both revered and feared the sea, showing a healthy respect for it. The Titanic, then, represents the notion that we had finally conquered the sea, and overcome all its demons. Titanic was touted to be unsinkable, not even God could sink this ship, as the famous saying goes. The tragedy of this hubris was exposed when Titanic not only did sink, but sunk on its first maiden voyage, taking 1500 people along with it. The fact that most of those who perished were in third class is evident again of the self-same hubris, the belief that wealth and power were signs of God's favour and that the first class could decide who was worth saving and who was not. You've probably heard in homilies that pride is the root of all sin, that it is the greatest sin and indeed the first sin. In ordinary parlance, we tend to think of pride as blowing your own trumpet or having a big head, when in actuality, All pride participates in hubris to some degree, because pride is the failure to give God what is rightfully His, whether that's worship, love or simply our gifts. Hubris is pride taken to its utmost extreme, when the very person of God is relegated in favour of ourselves, meaning ultimately that we ourselves become God. Whenever this happens in our myths and biblical stories, there is always a very dramatic fall from grace like the story of Satan's falling from heaven like lightning, or the scattering of people at the Tower of Babel. In our society today, hubris is no less rampant than it was in 1912, only it is often branded as something far more favourable. Examples of this could be those who hail our era as the post-truth era, where objective truth is killed and dethroned, while personal subjective truth is worshipped instead. Considering that God is truth, and that Jesus himself claimed to be truth itself, this modern view is disastrously hubris, touting man as wiser than God in defining things like moral laws, marriage, gender, and what constitutes life itself. Another type of hubris today comes through corporations promoting the so-called AI revolution without any discernment. Beneficial as AI may be for different dimensions of human flourishing, it is another thing to equate AI agents with human beings, or believe the soul can ever be manufactured, or even believe that AI can one day replace God. In each of these scenarios, it is easy to see the same titanic pattern at work, where the blind glorification of something over God is leading us instead to plummet towards the depth. And so, while some sections of our culture seem intent on beelining towards an iceberg, perhaps we can still be vocal enough and heed the warning against hubris and remind our contemporaries that God is God and we are not. On a much more pleasant note now, let's explore the depths of Titanic as a love story. If hubris turns us inward towards oneself and away from God, then love does the opposite. It turns us outwards, away from ourselves, and onto God. For love is the antidote to our hubris tendencies, and indeed it is the reversal of the very pride that brought about the fall. We'll now reflect on three scenes in Titanic that make the movie such a profound illustration of love, especially divine love. So as mentioned before, the first will be the I'm flying Jack scene, which takes place at sunset at the ship's bow, which is the frontmost point of the ship. This scene is often cited as one of the most romantic in cinema, and certainly one of the most iconic, and it is. But have you ever considered the sheer poetry of this scene in light of the romance of Christ and the cross? Let's start generally and work our way into specifics. First consider that from a storyline perspective, Jack Dawson was very much Rose's saviour figure, and in her own words, he saved me in every way a person can be saved it is interesting to note that their first encounter was on the complete opposite end of the ship, at the stern. Let's contrast that first scene, and then this current scene. When Rose first meets Jack, her life had reached a dead end, and she felt so trapped and claustrophobic that she felt her only escape was death. She saw no future with Cal, her betrothed, and certainly no new life in America. And so, in the sheer darkness of night, she steps up on the rails to jump to her death. That was the first scene. In this scene, however, she has gotten to know Jack, and through knowing him, her once-imprisoned life suddenly opens up and is expanded, and this feeling of freedom is captured in her saying I'm flying. Soaring, really. Rather than the sea threatening to be a place of her death, it now becomes a beautiful horizon, representing almost endless life and possibility. It didn't matter what happened to her when she got to America, as long as she had Jack. So it goes with you and I. Love turns our gaze outwards and upwards, whereas pride turns us inwards and downwards. Substitute Rose and Jack with us and God, and you'll realise that an experience of divine love is akin to flying. It expands our horizons, sets us free, and gives us a future full of hope. Partnering with God is a bit like sailing into a sunset too. There's enough light to allure us, but enough mystery to captivate us. Notice that Jack, as Rose's saviour figure, lifts her hands in a way that is quite literally cruciform, like Christ on the cross. Her open arms are at once the wings of a bird, as they are a gesture of surrender and an act of trust. And Jack could lead Rose to do this because he himself had done it first, before she arrived. And as she closes her eyes with her arms open, he places his hands in hers and joins her arms in cruciform fashion, literally backing her up in this act of total surrender. So you get where this is going. Now you have lover and beloved united upon the cross where they exchange their first kiss. Isn't this a profound way to look at the cross, not as an instrument of condemnation, but the place of consummation between Christ and his beloved, and the place where we, the beloved, most profoundly encounter the love of God himself. We too are inspired to offer up our lives, because Jesus himself had done so first on the cross. I'm not sure James Cameron had all this in mind consciously as he wrote this scene, but in some ways it doesn't matter. We human beings absorb information on multiple levels, consciously and subconsciously. And perhaps during this scene, something of the Christ archetype was always speaking to us. Perhaps with a language though that only the soul knows. The second love scene is in many ways a continuation and blossoming of this sunset scene, even though it is much sadder. When I say scene, it is really a series of scenes that make up the end of the movie, beginning with Jack in the freezing water, placing Rose on the floating door all the way to their final reunion in Rose's dream slash entry into heaven. While it's obvious enough how Jack's saviour role takes on a whole new level when he literally sacrifices his own life for hers, the biblical poetry of this scene again is quite rich. Before he dies, Jack actually speaks life into Rose once again, making her promise that no matter what happens, she would never let go, and that her heart would go on, fight on, live on, and never lose the will to keep on living. Even though Rose herself was at the point of death, Jack's words literally speak life to her and sustains her long enough to be rescued by the one returning lifeboat. Even after she lets Jack go into the ocean, you can see the determination she suddenly has to leap off the door into the freezing water, wade over to the body of a nearby sailor and blow the whistle over and over until she is eventually picked up. She had fire in her eyes, and if you think about it, this is quite unusual considering that she had just lost the love of her life. You'd expect someone to be grieved and defeated, but yet, it's like the very spirit of Jack lives in her now, and it literally revivifies her and fills her with his fire. This is so much like Christ on the cross, releasing his Holy Spirit upon his beloved, captured most beautifully in John's Gospel where he breathed his last on those at the foot of the cross. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' life in us and gives our hearts the fire of divine life. To receive his life in us is the mission of Jesus, just as in the movie, Jack's mission was to give his life to Rose and reanimate her. The fact that Jack literally gives Rose a door to float on is again a symbolically rich way of communicating entryway into new life. And the fact that Rose dives into the water in order to begin this new life is such a symbol of baptism. Okay, am I going a little bit nuts here? Am I just making things up? Yes, probably, but consciously or not, the Titanic love story has certainly struck a chord, and the romantic in me knows there's more going on than just Celine Dion. But there's more. The film ends with an elderly rose slipping away peacefully into a heaven-like state, where her soul floats down the corridors of Titanic once again, through a crowd of smiling people until she meets her beloved Jack waiting for her, standing at the clock at the same spot he had first met her to take her to dinner. Only now she's dressed in white like a wedding dress. So it's a wedding feast we're going to now? Keen audiences will recognize the nod here to the book of Revelation where at the end of time there is a wedding feast and Christ like Jack is eagerly awaiting us his betrothed. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. And now the mystery love scene. While we're on the topic of eternal love, I want to give a quick nod to the four historical people who made up the string quartet in Titanic, gentlemen who were also represented in the movie, playing up on deck while the ship was sinking. The names of these men were Wallace Hartley, Roger Bricot, John Hume and Georgs Crince. The eyewitness accounts goes that while everyone else scrambled to save themselves or rushed to a lifeboat, these four men chose to continue on in their vocation by playing upbeat cheery music in order to help people remain calm and not to totally lose their humanity. But slowly, when it was clear that the ship's sinking was imminent, these musicians actually switched music to a more sombre melody that you hear playing right now. It's actually a hymn called Nearer My God to Thee and it is so fitting because they knew that they were preparing 1500 souls to soon cross over death into eternity. They sacrificed their own lives for the sake of others in order that others might find life. One can't help wondering at the strength of the faith these four chaps had to be able to so flippantly throw their lives away. Surely, one could only love so deeply if they had eternity in mind. I'm always moved whenever I see these guys, because it reminds me of a particular moment I had in my novitiate. One day, during a time in the week we usually spent in formation, our formator priest took us brothers out quietly and walked us all to a local cemetery. There we stood in silence around the gravestones of one of our former brothers, not knowing what we were supposed to be doing there or what to pray. But after about 20 minutes of us pondering our mortality in relative peace and sunshine, our formator finally spoke. And all he said was, Remember, brothers, that the only thing you can take with you from this life to the next is love. Perhaps the gentlemen of the Titanic Quartet understood this notion better than most, because even in the face of certain death, they knew that wealth or prestige or even a long life would soon fade away. But love would always go on. Though the very titanic itself would soon disappear, their melodies of love would go on, cross over the threshold of death, and echo forever in eternity. Love is the only thing we can take with us into eternity. Truly, the heart does go on. Perhaps this is a fitting note to leave you, dear pilgrims, to ponder how you might live your life differently today Knowing that in the evening of your life, the only thing you can take with you is love.